Good evening. My name is Carl. I'm an alcoholic. I'd like to thank Robert for asking me to be here. I, uh, I enjoyed listening to Lisa. I certainly did. I just only disagree with one thing. An obvious difference between men and women alcoholics. If there were 6,000 sexually frustrated women across the street, uh, I would be drinking every single day. I, in fact, would be probably opening up a bar. Uh, I enjoyed it. I, uh, uh, and thank you, Robert, for uh, having me here. And Robert has, uh, this is the third place that I've been since I got here at four o'clock. Uh, and I know he goes to meetings because he knows all of you. You know all of him, right? He does not know how to get to any of these meetings. Um, we have missed every single turnoff on the... I think this is home group, and we went about three and a half miles out of our way, down some other road, and he was just talking away. Surprised he ever gets here. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. So anyway, I'm... Uh, new people, welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. You may not be that happy about being here, uh, but we are. We're happy you're here. Also, if there's anybody here, and you certainly don't need to raise your hand uh, about it, but if there's anybody here that has been sent by a judge, it's Alcoholics Anonymous, or maybe you've been sent to some sort of recovery facility and they're making you come here, and if you think it's a raw deal, I'm sure there's at least a few that you really think this is a raw deal, that you got stuck going to Alcoholics Anonymous by the judge, and you feel that this is a grave miscarriage of justice, I have some advice for you. This advice I have for you includes... Before you leave here, grab this particular pamphlet. I'll let you know which pamphlet uh, here in a second. Grab this particular pamphlet. It's Friday night, uh, Saturday night now. Wait, uh, you'll have to wait till Monday. After grabbing this pamphlet on Monday morning, go back to court and let the judge know how you feel about this. Tell him, Judge, I'm not doing it. I AA sucks, and it's a miscarriage of justice, and I'm not doing it. The pamphlet that I suggest you get before you do this is a pamphlet called AA in Prison. It will uh, certainly come in handy. Uh, I promise you, if you're a man, the meetings will look very different than this one. But maybe you can concentrate better. I don't know. Anyway, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. That's really the most important thing I can tell you about myself that I'm an alcoholic, and the reason I believe I'm an alcoholic is really very simple. I've got a really strange relationship with alcohol. That's why I'm an alcoholic, and no other reason. And this strange relationship I have with alcohol takes on a few forms. The first part of this strange relationship that I have with alcohol happens when I drink it. A very strange thing happens when I drink booze. The book calls it an allergic reaction. The book says the symptom of this allergic reaction that I get when I drink booze is what they refer to as the phenomenon of craving. And this... The best way that I can describe this thing that the book calls the phenomenon of craving in my life is that it seems like whenever I drink booze, the more booze I drink, the thirstier I get. It's, it's really strange. And it happens with nothing else, just booze. An example of that is they're kind enough to give me this bottle of water. And over the next 45 minutes that I'm talking with you, I will probably drink at least half this bottle of water. But I can absolutely guarantee you that once I finish this bottle of water, I am not going to go get a case of water and lock myself in a motel room. I am not. 
But if that was the only thing that made me alcoholic, this strange physical reaction, the lack of control once I start drinking, this, the fa- this thing they call the phenomenon of craving, if that was the only thing that made me alcoholic, well then, just say no would have wiped out alcoholism, right? Early 80s, Nancy Reagan came out and said, just say no. I would have, and I imagine you would have gone, ha ha, no. And just gone on and lived a happy, successful life just saying no. But I have another strange part of my relationship with alcohol, and that happens when I'm not drinking it. Up and by myself, if I don't drink for a day, a week, or a month, I seem to have this mind that is able to paint a picture that makes it okay to take another drink, no matter what the pain, humiliation, and suffering of a day, a week, or a month ago was. And it certainly never enters into the equation whether it was my pain and humiliation or your pain and humiliation. does not matter. Sooner or later, my mind is able to rationalize and justify my walk back to the next drink at all costs. So I can't drink successfully because of this strange physical reaction, but I cannot, even by myself, not drink successfully. I'm damned if I do. I'm damned if I don't. It's the ultimate catch-22 we call alcoholism. I want to harp on this physical factor, this craving that uh, the book says that any description of the alcoholic that does not include this physical factor is incomplete. I completely agree. It's actually the thing that also is the one thing that we all have in common. Everything else, the way that we lie to ourselves and, you know, our backgrounds, races, creeds, colors, religions, good family, bad family, you know, what do they say, Yale or jail, Park Avenue or Park Bench, can all be a cross-section of all of society. And also, the way we act while drinking is very, very uh, different also. An example of that, let's say we cr- right through that back door, we opened up that door and we wheeled in a giant cart. And on that cart, we had every kind of booze we all like. Whether you like Top Shelf, Cravassier, some Remy Martin, great. If, you, if I'm going to be there, I want some Mad Dog 2020 and 10 High also. Right? And everything in between. And we wheeled it in on a cart here, right into the center of the room. And we all had a good four or five stiff drinks. We would all be acting differently. Over in this corner, there would be a bunch of us. Ha, 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 talk, 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 ha, 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 ha. Right? Over in this corner, there'd be a bunch of us. Over in this corner, there'd be a bunch of people fighting. Over here, a lot of us, naked, flat out naked. There's some there's some non-alcoholics going really in a church. Yes, in a church we would do that. Me, I'd be visiting each group on my way over there. I would wind up there sooner or later. But there's one thing we all have in common. No ifs, ands, or buts. We would all be back at that cart for more. No matter how. And that explains, if you knew, why people's stories are so different. That's why some people go to jail and others never go to jail. That's why some drink at home and some people, man, they travel when they drink. Right? Other people just sob at home and other people fight. Right? So if you're new... Understand, it crosses everything. The one thing that we all have in common is this strange physical craving. So I set this relationship up with alcohol that I just described to you right from the get-go when I first started drinking. I started drinking a lot later than a lot of people in AA. I was 11. Uh, It is kind of late these days, really. We lived in Seattle on a typical morning in the seventh grade. For me, it would be I'd show up early for school, not for study hall or anything, but to meet my new friends at the very edge of the school property, Loser's Corner. Every school's got a Loser's Corner. It's about ten feet off the school property. It's kind of like the way you guys treat your smokers out there, right? Just <laughs> off there a little ways. And 
there'd be about eight or ten of us hanging out there, looking cool, smoking cigarettes. And we would also have what I like to call the playground cocktail. That is a jar full of whatever we could rip off out of the parents' liquor can the night before. And that jar is scary because none of us have been to bartending school yet. Right? So there's just equal amounts of whatever we could hurriedly, you know, throw. Green of it? Yeah. Vermouth? Ooh, yeah. Whiskey? Right? Throw it all in the jar. You can imagine, you know, six or seven of us, 11, 12-year-olds choking that down. <laughs> 7 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> Plus, it was early 70s, so we're smoking that commercial pot. Anybody remember that stuff? Four-finger lids, $10 a bag, seeds and stems and the whole bit. Even, it was even before Ziploc baggies were invented, when it would just be a regular glad bag. And as you roll it up, there'd be like nine people spit on it. Oh, man. <laughs> we pack all those seeds and stems into a homemade pipe and maybe may made out of plumbing fittings and a screen. Or if we're really desperate that morning, it would be a toilet paper roll with aluminum foil and pinholes in it. Were you guys there, too? Will, were you there? Yeah, your hair is great, too. We're, we are definitely there. Yeah. Now, it's at this point that many people that speak of meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, they often, at this point, they often interrupt themselves. They say something like this, I don't mean to offend anybody, but drugs are a part of my story. And I understand and have great respect for what they are attempting to do when they say that. They're attempting to protect singleness of purpose. Vitally important as aspect of Alcoholics Anonymous should not be forgotten. And indeed, no individual should represent to the public at large or to anyone else that Alcoholics Anonymous is about anything other than recovery from alcoholism. We're kind of a one-trick pony organization. The name kind of insinuates that, right? It's pretty singular, isn't it? But that idea aside, I still think it's a really bizarre practice for alcoholics to apologize to other alcoholics for doing drugs while drinking or in between drunk. See, I understand apologizing to police officers and judges and people that may still love it, but I don't know why we apologize to each other, for goodness sake. In fact, the most bizarre example I've ever seen of that, I was at, it was a number of years ago, at least 10 or 15 years ago, and I was in a big meeting out in the west side of Los Angeles, and the speaker that night was up there just giving one of the most nasty, heinous, ugly, blow-by-blow drunkologues I've ever heard. And i got to tell you, and I'm out there listening, and the drunkalog starts to get ugly from the speaker, the uglier it gets, the more excited I get. And I think that night I was on the edge of my chair drooling, looking up at the guy going, Yeah, buddy, go! Go, go! Mm, love it! <laughs> and at one, point, at one point in this really ugly story, this guy said, You know, I had four DUIs. That's DW. You guys call them DWIs, DUIs, whatever, driving under the influence. I had four DUIs. The judge said, If I get one more DUI, I'm going to prison for sure. He says, two weeks later, I'm on the freeway in a blackout. I had a family of four. They all wound up in the hospital, and I wound up in prison. And in prison, I sodomized men. I was sodomizing. I don't mean to offend anybody, but I did some drugs, too. <laughs> I was the only one that thought that was strange that night. Everybody go home. So anyway, by the time I'm 14, they're in Seattle, I'm the the neighborhood drunk, I'm the neighborhood pot dealer, I forgot to mention, but my father was a neighborhood Lutheran minister. Um, Yeah, he was not chuckling. Um, My parents, really good people, good, good people, and they saw that something was happening to me. I mean, it was hard to hide. By the time I'm 14, my hair is growing down onto my shoulders and in front of my bloodshot eyes, and my vocabulary at 14 was, whoa, (laughs) wow, whoa, wow, right? That was my vocabulary. And my parents, 
didn't understand what was wrong. They blamed my problems on people, places, and things. They thought, if we can get them away from that damn group of kids he's hanging out with, things would get better. If we can get them out of that damn public school system, things get They tried all of the above. You see, I'm an alcoholic. My problems are not based upon people, places, and things. My problems are based upon my physical and mental relationship to alcohol. You see, if you change the people, place, and things in somebody's life like mine, all that happens is that I'm loaded with different people in different places, ruining different things. That's all that happens. By the time I was uh, 18, I barely scraped out of the public school system there in Seattle, and my parents decided that Seattle was a problem. You get them out of Seattle, things would get better. So they sent me 300 miles away to Washington State University. I spent three years at that university on my parents' money, and in that three years, I got approximately 10 credits. Um, at any given time, my grade point average matched my blood alcohol content. That's what was going on. About a 0.25. Right? Not 2.5, 0.25. By the time I was 22, this little story I'm about to tell you will let you know exactly where I stood with my family. Now, my father was Swedish. My mother is Icelandic. Therefore, I look like a polar bear. And I don't know whether this custom I'm about to tell you about is Scandinavian or whether it's Lutheran. I don't know. But at Christmas time, my parents wouldn't just send out Christmas cards to their friends and relatives. My parents would send out this big, long Christmas letter that said everything the family had been doing that year. When I was about 22, I got a hold of one of these letters that had been sent out the previous Christmas. And as I read it, it let me know exactly where I stood with my family. Now, the first paragraph talked about what my parents had been doing that year. Another impressive year, I'm sure. They lived a very impressive life. They really did. The second paragraph talked about what the Morris children had been doing that year, and that paragraph went something like this. Our oldest daughter, Christina, just graduated from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, with a master's degree in human resources. She's now working for a large pharmaceutical company in the Midwest. She traveled to Europe this summer. She saw this. She saw that. Her hobbies are this, this, and this. She's a very happy young woman. We are very proud of her. Our oldest son, Eric, just graduated from Western Washington State University with a degree in marketing. He's now working for a large advertising firm here in downtown Seattle. He loves the golf. He loves to travel. He's engaged to be married to this wonderful woman named Mary Lou, who works for a very small company here in Seattle named Microsoft. <coughs> it was small at one time. <coughs> they love to golf together. They love to travel together. He's a very happy young man. We are very proud of him. Our youngest son, Carl, just turned 22. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's about this same time, uh, really would take, it, it, I, I'm, I'm really cutting to the chase here. Uh, it would take till breakfast to tell you what happened over the next 18 to 20 some months, but a re, this, to sum it all up, really bad night happened, just minding my own business as far as I'm concerned. All of a sudden, the doors and windows are being broken down, men with badges, guns, and handcuffs, and they're angry, right? Uh, just one of those nights. So I, so <laughs> I joined the Navy, <clears throat> is what I did. I, you know, there's a lot to describe as to how, why, what, what, but that just takes for breakfast. But on my way into the na Navy, I passed a potential test. This should concern you. This should concern you if you care anything about the security of the United States. But on my way into the Navy, I passed a potential test that qualified me. It's called the ASVAP test. And this test that I took qualified me to become a nuclear engineer. That should concern you that the United States Navy has any type of system in place that would maybe, possibly, or even remotely allow somebody like me near anything nuclear. <laughs> However, they made me take another test when I showed up at that base for boot camp, and I could not pass that particular test. Uh, they call that one a urinalysis test is what they call that one. 
never could pass her. Oh, God, I still remember I'd been in boot camp for about 10 days, and the master arms came in, and he had this clipboard. Master arms like military police. And had this clipboard. There were about four or five names on it, and I knew my name was going to be on that clipboard. And he took us out of the boot camp barracks and took us over to the other side of the Great Lakes Naval Base in, in Illinois, outside Chicago. And the other guys were taken into one building on the administrative side of the base, and I was taken into a whole other building, and I was marched right into the commanding officer's office, the man who ran the whole Great Lakes Naval Base. And I remember being in that office, big oak desk, pictures of naval vessels on the wall, kind of like the disciples here, right? <clears throat> and the man sitting behind the desk had so much gold on it, it would blind you on a bad morning. And this would have been the early 80s, so he had a telephone on this big oak desk with a speakerphone attachment attached to it, and he pushed the button on the speakerphone, and into that speakerphone he said, Walt, it's my father's name. My father had been a, a reservist chaplain in the United States Navy for 40 years at that point, active in two different wars, and had remained a reservist chaplain. He was the highest-ranking chaplain in the Pacific Northwest. This was an old World War II buddy of my father's. And into this phone, he said, Walt, out of consideration for our long-term friendship, I'm supposed to kick your son out of the Navy right here, right now. But I would have out of respect for our long-term friendship, I thought I should ask you, what do you feel we should do with your son? Normally, if you met my father, you would see just by his, uh, by his voice and his body language that he had a real love of life. You could just tell it by just by the tone of his voice, by his body language, and, and he, just, he found life to be such an immense privilege for everything he got to do in this world. And you could sense it. But there was another voice that would come out every once in a while, and it was a voice like somebody had just kicked him below the belt. And that, I'd heard that voice many, many times, and it was always when he was dealing with me. And it got weaker and weaker and weaker. And that was the voice that I heard come through that phone that morning. I heard my father's very weak, very destroyed voice just say, I just, it's none of my concern anymore. And click and dial tone. As I stand here today, I can still hear that and see the look on the face of the man behind the desk says, look up. He decided to keep me in the Navy anyway. Thank God for you guys. He took away that nuclear status. <laughs> yeah. And a year and a half later, I'm a lower rank than when I first came in. Um, really could happen anybody. <laughs> it's kind of like this. Uh, when I would look, at, I'd be out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I would survey my surroundings. I'd see that, by God, I'm in, I'm in a uniform. I'm on a big gray ship, and I am in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. No doubt about it, I am in the United States Navy. However, that ship would pull into a port, and I would take a drink, and I would totally forget that I'm in the United States Navy. And at this point in my life, when I take a drink, I don't know whether it's going to be three hours or three days. Really, I have no idea whether it's going to be three hours or three days. And it's a very strange feeling at 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning in a foreign country on a large pier, standing there going... <clears throat> There was a destroyer here the other day. <laughs> it's about the same time uh, I've been in the Navy almost two years and uh, about a year and a half. And I, uh, uh, 
I'd been drinking all weekend for a couple of days. I was at the end of a two, two-and-a-half-day drunk, and what I would always do when I had to get back to the ship, it was early morning, I had to get back to the ship, I would always have another pint, and I'd get half a pint in me. I'd, I'd go onto the ship, I'd work half a day, I'd, I'd hide from my superiors for half a day, then I'd run back out to the car, finish the other. That's my way of sliding into Tuesday, sort of my detox plan from the two-day drunk I was on. And I was driving my car into the base. I had that pint. I was trying to get uh, half of it in me. And there's a guard shack at the front of every naval base where a Marine stands guard. And if everything is going as planned, you slowly pull up at this guard shack where a Marine is standing guard. He'll, he'll check your military ID. He'll check the sticker on your car. If everything's in order, he'll allow you to proceed forward on the base. This particular morning, I guess I was paying more attention to getting that half a pint in me. And all of a sudden, my eyes came into focus. And the Marine had his head out of the guard shack like... I was wondering what he was so excited about until I looked down and saw I was still going 40 miles an hour. I yanked the wheel to the right trying to swerve, but there was a big cement median off on the right-hand side, and the car glanced off that and flipped over and bam, right through the guard shack. I can still see that Marine doing this big dive out of there. Thank God those guys are in good shape, really. It's just, uh, just right through that guard shack, big mess of metal and glass and wood, and the Marine was dusting himself off, and he was all right. They're patching me up at the hospital, and the uh, Navy was very angry at me that morning. Uh, at the hospital, they were patching me up and reading new charges on me, and this is nothing significant in my life. New charges, that's just what happens in a guy's life like mine about every 90 days if you're living the way I'm living. So there's nothing significant or new about that. But the most significant thing that they did that morning is they prescribed this stuff called antabuse for me. And, yeah, and they sent this prescription back to the ship's doctor, and I was now under orders to show up at sick bay every single morning about 6 a.m., and the corpsman would put this little white pill on my tongue and make me sit there for a half an hour to make sure it actually ingested in my system. Over the next 7 to 10 days, I started to experience the most cunning, baffling, and powerful side of this illness we refer to as alcoholism, and that is I had no al alcohol or drugs in my system, and I was literally going insane. I had felt this briefly throughout my life, but it wasn't... I always would be able to drink before it got too bad. And now I'm on this antabuse, and I knew I was not supposed to drink, and I, it wasn't within an arm's reach, and it wasn't two days from now I know I could drink. And I literally... What happens to me when you take alcohol away from me, and you do not give me Alcoholics Anonymous, the best way I've ever heard it described is that I feel like a scream looking for a mouth. I really... I've never, I didn't know how to describe this to anybody, but it just... Restless cerebral and discontent, as described in the doctor's opinion in the big book, is a nice generic sort of description that kind of covers the majority of us. I have it acutely. I remember counting those days on that ambulance. Just it's been four days. I'm on ambulance. Now it's been six days, and I'm on antabuse. Now it's eight days, six hours, and 15 minutes, and I'm on antabuse. And I started to look around that ship. The other men, they're talking behind my back, all 300 of them. Have you ever felt that way in AA? The only difference is that in AA, uh, we are talking behind your back. It's not an illusion. It's really happening. It really is. Only with love and tolerance at the Fifth Tradition Group, I'm sure. 
On the 10th day, I just snapped. I went AWOL from my ship. I locked myself in a little hotel room in downtown San Diego, Plaza Hotel. It's on 4th and Broadway. This would have been 1986. Uh, uh, in 1986, the Plaza Hotel cost $13 a night. They have rehabbed the, that whole area of San Diego now, and the Plaza Hotel also got a little bit of a rehab. It's now $13.95 a night. <laughs> Locked myself in this little hotel room. I had a bottle of vodka and a shot glass up on, the, on this rickety little end table. And as I stared at the bottle of vodka, I remembered that the Navy doctors had given me a very stern warning about drinking on top of antibiotics when they prescribed it for me. They had told me, son, you need to understand that if you drink on top of this antibiotics, you will get one of two reactions. One of two reactions. One reaction is you will get violently ill. The other reaction is you might die. I remember looking at the bottle and I thought, <clears throat> well, wonder which reaction I'm going to get. <laughs> I took one shot and nothing happened. Authority had lied to me again as far as I was concerned. I waited about two minutes just to make sure. And I took another shot. All of a sudden I felt tingly in the face. So I looked in this cracked little mirror that was in this hotel room, and I was bright red, blotchy and purple in places. Hmm. Took another shot. All of a sudden, I could feel my heart going boom, boom, boom. Looked at my shirt. I was drenched in sweat, and all of a sudden, I was like, <gasps> hyperventilating. <gasps> We're doing all right so far. You guys are kind of sick, if you think this is funny. <laughs> I took another shot, and up it came. My late sponsor, Eddie Cochran, one of the pioneers of Southern California Alcoholics Anonymous, passed away in 1999 with 47 years of sobriety, which would have meant this December he would have had 62 years of sobriety. He, uh, he called the next thing that happened to me projectile regurgitation. This is a new level of puking that I was not used to. We all know, we all know normal puking, right? We're out there in the middle of a drunk, right? And we get that little warning, right? A little sour taste in the back of the throat. Maybe a little bit comes up in the mouth and you kind of go, mm. And we all know, based upon experience, we've got 30 seconds to a minute to find a bathroom if there happens to be one. If we're driving, we try to get the window down. If it's our friend's shoe tonight, that's just the way it goes. But we get the warning. But here on the interviews, no warning. Just, ah! just sort of this. Linda Blair spray across the room. Thank God the Plaza Hotel is the type of hotel room where the toilet is in the same room with the bed. It's a design feature, I believe, to maybe make convicts feel more at home upon release. I'm not really sure. But I found the magic of drinking on top of interviews. That if I would hang in there, and this was important. And so if there is anybody, I don't know if they really use interviews that much anymore, but uh, I wish they wouldn't because it just sort of like, it's kind of like a death sentence for a real alcoholic. But if there is, I, I want you to know, but you got to get the directions first, right? Don't pop up right now when I say you can drink on top of it. Don't hop and go, oh, speaker said no drink on interviews. No, you got to get the directions first. If you're going to drink on top of antibiotics, you have to get two things going on at the very same time. First thing you've got to do is you've got to hang in there. You really cannot half measure this. It takes a level of commitment. Right? No sort of like uh, wishy-washy stuff. Just, you've got to hang in. Uh-oh. <laughs> She's calling her sponsor. I can drink on it. I'm 
First, so you got to hang in there. That's the first thing. You got to hang in there. Second thing, at the very same time, don't die. If you can get those, if you can get those two things together, I invite you have at it. Uh, I drank on top of Vanderbilt the last seven months of my drinking. The only words to describe this are desperation drinking. Uh, my second to my last drunk, I was left for dead in a motel parking lot where three men had opened up my face going after my military ideas. I was in the middle of a two-day drunk, and it was about 1 a.m., and I thought crack cocaine's a good idea. <clears throat> so I was wandering around an area of San Diego uh, where they sell crack cocaine, and apparently they, you know, what happens to you, what happens to you? That's the last thing I remember is this three men in fists flying. And then there was uh, lots of blood. Uh, apparently the fists were not mine. They were theirs, and the blood was mine, right? <laughs> Next thing I remember is I came to, and I'm on an operating table. The, it was many hours later, and anybody in the medical profession would know that somebody who shows up with their jaw separated from their face, and they have no idea what combination of alcohol or drugs that are in their system, it's illegal to use anesthesia. So they were doing surgery on my face with no anesthesia. That was a fun morning. My, <laughs> every time I go to a dentist now that I haven't been to, they go, Whoa! What is happening there, right, with the way my jaw is set? So, because I guess I was screaming and they were trying to set the jaw at the same time. <laughs> right. My last night of drinking, I'm being let out of the San Diego jail, I'm being transferred from civilian authorities back to military authorities, lots of angry people around. I'm in handcuffs. You know those mornings, right? Those angry people in handcuffs. And uh, they wouldn't allow me on board my ship. The officer deck put his arm up and said, wrong answer. We're, the orders have already been processed on this loser. The orders are 90 days in the brig, bad conduct, discharge, or treatment. Now, as I stood there in handcuffs, apparently some sort of option was thrown out on the table. And I do not remember thinking, oh, God, you're so good to a bum like me. I, I just can't go on this way. And, and look, at you've offered treatment. Oh, thank you. I don't remember that at all. Nor do I remember, and this would have been more likely, but I don't remember this either. I, uh, it would have been more likely that I would have thought, hey, if I just act like I want that treatment thing, maybe I can beat this rat too. That would have been more likely, but I don't remember that. I now know it wouldn't have mattered what I was thinking or feeling that morning because I was in handcuffs. And I don't know about your experience in handcuffs, but my experience throughout my life, whenever I was in handcuffs, I had the same experience. Whenever I was in handcuffs, whoever had me in handcuffs, never once did they ever turn to me and say, so what's your opinion on this matter? <laughs> just, it doesn't go that way. Right? When you're in handcuffs, you go where they say. They took me up to this treatment center up in the north end of San Diego at the Miramar Naval Base. And uh, it's where the top gun school was. Right? And uh, we were a small section of that. They called us top drunk. So... I was taken up there that morning, and when the doors were locked behind me, that's when they took the handcuffs off me. And that is what the society in which I live feels about how Carl Morris acts out there in the world without Alcoholics Anonymous, and rightfully so. They're willing to take the handcuffs off me when the doors are locked behind me. Now, I didn't know this about handcuffs. I had always thought that they were just sort of a kind of a minor and temporary inconvenience. They'll be off soon, you know, sometime in the next six hours, 12 hours, two days, whatever. You know, I just never gave it much thought. But I didn't understand what handcuffs really are. Maybe you haven't also given it that much of a thought. Handcuffs are actually, and maybe you didn't know this, handcuffs are actually a symbol from our society where the society in which we live is screaming very loudly, Excuse me, we don't even trust you with your own hands. Did you know that? I never knew that. I never knew that. So I'm in this treatment center, got to do 45 days in this treatment center, 
and uh, 35 would show up. And as far as treatment centers go, this was a really, really good treatment center because they understood. They took us to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous every single night. They did all the other stuff that other treatment centers do during the day, but they understood they were also powerless over alcohol. Strange thing for a treatment center to understand. They understood the only chance of success for any of us. Yeah, they can separate us physically from alcohol. They can detox us. They can give us some good information. But they were as powerless as anything else over alcoholism. And they were just praying to God that in, uh, enough of us would drift over to Alcoholics Anonymous and, and find our lives over there. And that's why they took us there every single night. Uh, if you're ever in San Diego, you can see the, the, the sailors you know, being dragged around in meetings in these white vans. And they also have an armed guard that accompanies them. Right? So there's usually about in the meeting like this, there'd be about four or five uh, Marines or sailors, you know, sitting in the back. You know, right. And the armed guard is outside. Right. He's smoking, making sure we see his weapon on the side <clears throat> so we can't run out of the meeting. That's what their version of strong sponsorship is, I guess. <laughs> but I got to tell you, I am a person who came to Alcoholics Anonymous and did not fit the conditions of the traditions. I did not have a desire to stop drinking. If I had a desire for anything, is that could you please teach me how I could get as loaded as I want and everybody quit going to jails and hospitals and my mother can still be proud of me. If you could teach me something like that, that I could get as loaded as, I'm, as often as I want, as much as I want, and everybody stay off my back, I'd be interested. But I, I just, you know, I was just here because I was forced by the military to be sitting in your meetings. And because you guys didn't care what my situation was, and you just carried on with your meetings anyway, whether we were here or not, I got to hear the message of Alcoholics Anonymous just sitting in the back, in my first 45 days, meeting every single night with the military. And you guys just carried on. I still remember my very first meeting. About 15, 20 people came up to a podium. There was podium participation. And I just sat there in the back going, oh, my God, they know. Jesus, they know. Now, if you would have seen me back there thinking, and you would have said, so what is it that they know that you think you know? I would have gone, I don't know. <clears throat> But they know. I'm not one of these guys that said, not me, not me, not me, not me. I'm one of these guys that said, oh, my God, Jesus. And what it was is I was, what was happening to me is I believe what Alcoholics Anonymous wants to happen to anybody sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was identifying and I was identifying because I believe these people in these meetings that I was going to. And you know what? I see this all over the world. People sharing responsibly in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And because they, I believe Alcoholics Anonymous wants brand new people to hear two things. And this is what I was identifying with. I was identifying with the way you described your drinking. And even more importantly, I was identifying with the way you described the way you felt when you were not drinking. Because I, man, that was just nailing me between the eyes. I had never heard people talk about that before. And that's the thing that had been killing me. There's only one thing worse than the trouble I was getting into from drinking, and that's the way I was feeling when I was not drinking. Right? And if I could have described it to people when people were angry at me or trying to take alcohol away from me or there's another tragic situation, if I could have described it, I would have said, yes, 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 I know it looks bad, I agree. Yes, I see that burning car over there, I'm on your side. Looks bad. 
But if you knew how I felt when I wasn't drinking, you wouldn't be asking me why I drink. I'm willing to pay that price because I'm unwilling to pay this other price for the way that I feel when you take alcohol away from me. And you guys were talking about that. And you guys had a solution. I couldn't follow you, but I, I, when you started describing your solution, I couldn't follow it. But I knew you had something. You had something in your eyes. There was something going on in these rooms. And I believed you used to drink like me, and I believed you were sober. And I believed you were even more happy about that. Right? So after 45 days, you let us all out of that treatment center. This is what the orders were. Um, I remember uh, getting out of that treatment center, and the only thing I knew what to do was go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm sitting in the back of this meeting with 45 days. I had a lot of information, and I was physically feeling better. Dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. I had 45 days, and I had information, and I was physically feeling better. I had I'd not had a spiritual awakening, spiritual experience, or even a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. And what was even more scary is I did not know I needed that. I didn't know that. I, I had no concept that I was still dying of untreated alcoholism. 45 days fresh out of a treatment center. Information. And what, what, that night, I stormed, one night, I'm sitting in the back of the meeting. This night, and one guy that night operating his primary purpose came over and said, hey, never seen you here before. What are you doing? I didn't think quick enough to lie to him because I promised you if I would have thought for one more second, I would have lied to him. But I accidentally told him the truth. And I said, uh, you know, I don't know. I just got out of the Navy, Navy treatment center a couple hours ago. And uh, <laughs> you got me. I don't know what I'm doing. This guy's eyes went bing. Big smile went across his face. At the break, he's like fighting his friends up. He's mine. I got him. I got him. No, mine. Mine. I didn't know there's guys in AA that lurk around meetings trying to find new guys. Right? But there was something else going on in this guy's life that particular Friday night that made him especially glad to meet me. This guy's girlfriend had left him the night before for one of his friends in his home group. <laughs> yeah. And so he was wondering what he was going to do with his weekend. Homicide, suicide, get loaded or grab this newcomer. He's like all over me all weekend. We went to like 18 meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> this guy was insane over this woman, flat out insane. In between this barrage of meetings we were going to, in between each meeting, he'd throw me in the passenger side of his car, he'd start driving, and he'd start yelling. He wouldn't even look at the road. He had like one of these AA radar cars that just made it to the next meeting, I guess. <laughs> and he'd be yelling at me, you got to go to meet, you got to read the book, you got to get the sponsor. God damn her! got to go to meet, you got to read the book, damn her! I'm like, whoa, whoa! Calm down! Now, I didn't know it, but I was getting a very early introduction to your typical AA relationship breakup is what I was getting. <laughs> but I'm so very glad that that guy, that night, in his pain, was a guy in Alcoholics Anonymous who had done the work of Alcoholics Anonymous, had taken the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and therefore he understood that the solution to his pain was out of self, out of self, out of self. I'm so glad that that guy, that night, was not at home, underneath his covers, Whining into his sponsor's answer machine. Where are you, sponsor? Call me. Give me a magical answer. Right? He was out dragging my sorry butt around. I was just a prop in his weekend, so he didn't do something really stupid. He didn't know whether I would stay sober or not, and I couldn't even tell you whether he cared or not. Probably. Probably. I never saw him again. Came back to my ship after that weekend, and 
The one other sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous was on my ship was waiting for me. His name was Bob W. He had 14 months, and he was going to carry the message to me whether I wanted it or not. <laughs> he viewed it that, I, you know, he had 14 months. He had a sponsor. He had commitments. He, he was working steps. He was involved. He was an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I'm so glad that the one other guy on my ship that was sober was not a guy who hadn't been to a meeting in nine months. Had to, like, go find a directory and randomly pick a meeting to, you know, if somebody from the ship said, hey, there's a guy coming out of the treatment. Didn't you go to that treatment center 14 months ago? Why don't you, uh, like, take him some? Oh, oh uh, find a directory or call up a, where can I take him to a meeting? He literally, all he had to do to effectively help save my life was stick his hand out and say, come do what I'm doing. That's a really valuable way of life he was living. All he had to do to effectively help save my life was stick his hand out and say, Come do what I'm doing. Who else on this planet can reach out to the dying and say, come do what I'm doing and effectively help save their life? I challenge you. Who else? On, we forget how valuable this gift is that we have. Don't we? Quite often we're sitting in a meeting. Another goddamn meeting of alcohol. It's not. God, I wish he would shut up. God. Oh, really? Is he saying that again? Oh, Right? You know, I'm not going tomorrow. I'm, I'm not going next week. I'm... Don't we? We all do. You're not the only one that thinks that way. You know, we understand this is not the most glamorous thing going on in town. Right? But it's the biggest gift ever given to somebody like me. And I need to guard it with my life. Six months sober, my, uh, our ship had to go out to sea. Now, my first six months was meeting, 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 coffee, 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 meeting, 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 coffee, coffee, meet a girl. Ah! Meeting, 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 coffee, coffee, coffee. <laughs> I still remember, like, three, four months, met this girl. She was at this meeting, and she looked down. The, we were, like, right about here, and she's about there, and I'm right about here. And we looked at each other b- before the break. And, and at the break, we said, like, eight things to each other, you know, eight words, not sentences, words. I, hmm, alcoholic. Oh, so I run. I run. I run. My sponsor's outside with his buddies, and I go, Bob, Bob, you wouldn't believe it. I met this girl. God put her in my life. Absolutely. She's an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. She... Think of the odds at an AA meeting. Whoa. God put her in my life. I know it. And one of my sponsor's friends jumped right into that conversation. Hey, Carl, God's not a pimp. Like, oh. Ooh, 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 ooh. At six months, our ship had to go out to sea. And for, for three weeks straight. Our normal uh, mission was that we, it was during the height of the Cold War, mid-80s. We cruised the 200-mile uh, uh, radi- uh, limit off the, off the coast all the way from Alaska down to South America hunting Russian submarines. It was all that Tom Clancy chasing. It wasn't really that glamorous, but that's really what was supposedly going on. Quite often we were chasing our own submarines, but <clears throat> anyway. And we would often pull in port, but now we had to do three weeks out all at one time, and so... My first spon- I had six months. My first sponsor said, meet me down in the engine room every single night, 6.30 p.m. Very first night that I showed up, he had that blue book. Oh, don't have one up here. These are all Bibles. And he tossed it down on the, on the table. He said, I've been hounding about it for months. Have you read it? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's like how it works. We antagonists, some doctor with some opinion about something. I remember he was only 14 months ahead of me. He was no expert at working with others. 
didn't matter. Somehow he intuitively knew, or his sponsor intuitively knew, that step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry. It does not say successfully. It does not say eloquently. It does not say, you know, get qualified first, and then, and only then can you do it. It just says, we tried. Right? And he, he started to feed me alcoholics and honest. In, in retrospect and looking back, he and I were having an, uh, two guys in, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, way down in the bottom of a, a destroyer, with a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was literally Alcoholics Anonymous in its purest form. The blind leading the blind. We're just desperately trying to stay sober. Two guys in a big book. And I look back at it, and it just, it just literally, it just... It's where my life was saved. It's where I had an experience that I can only describe. The best way to put, put it is that it's described in the back of the book. A personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. The first thing that happened in that period of time is that I understood what alcoholism was. I've been raising my hand. I'm Carl an alcoholic. <laughs> I'm Carl an alcoholic. But I didn't really know what that meant. I did not know the, gr- the grave nature of my situation. The 12 and 12 says... Being driven uh, under the lash of alcoholism and Alcoholics Anonymous, it was there that we learned the fatal nature of our situation. And it wasn't until I would hear for a while that I understood, when I really understand step one and what alcoholism really is, I should have the same feeling as, you guys have all had AIDS tests, right? That same feeling that if the doctor were to look up from the desk and go, I'm real sorry. That sinking death sentence. That's what the feeling should be if I really understood what alcoholism is. It is a fatal, fatal disease. The only difference is the solution is amazing. Absolutely the most powerful, wonderful gift in the world. So prior to that, you might have found me holding my gut. Maybe some of you knew, know that feeling, that feeling that you try to push down. And, you just, and may, maybe you say the same things I do. What's wrong with me? Why do I feel this way? I'm going to meetings. What's wrong with me? I've been saying that for months. And although, after going through the book, I still might have gotten that feeling. Still do every once in a while. Every once in a while, that feeling creeps in. I don't say, what's wrong with me? I go, ooh, alcoholism. Huge gift to be able to put a label on that. Otherwise, I'm going to wander around this planet being misdiagnosed all over the place. All over the place, I will be misdiagnosed if I don't understand what that is, what that soul sickness is. And that is alcoholism. Alcohol abuse is just simply the things we do while drinking. Alcoholism is what happens to us when, we, when alcohol is taken away from us. That spiritual malady, that soul sickness, that must be paid attention to. So what happened to me during that period of time is described in the back of the book as a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. But I did not get the real gift that is promised in Alcoholics Anonymous and that I can promise to you if you're new. The real gift, which I like to describe as the healing at the level of my soul. To where that thing that makes me me gets to hear the music of life, see the colors, and connect with God's other kids once again. Just like when I was a little boy. Right? I see my son right now. I've got these two little kids. Anyway, we'll get to that in a second. Oh, real quickly, happy. Until I did something else, right? I was only put in a position the first time through the book. I was put in a position to find the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
But I wasn't going to really get the gift until I did something else. Until I ever so feebly did what was done with me with someone else. When I tried to do what Bob had done with me with someone else, that's when I found the real gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. Two years sober, got an honorable discharge out of the Navy. That is a direct result of the... uh, of a, uh, the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, a uh, loving and apparently merciful God, and a personnelman that lost half my file. That's how that happened. <laughs> Moved up to Covina to uh, go to school because one of my amends was that my parents had paid for a bachelor's degree. I did not have one. I either had to pay them back every single nickel, or I had to go get what they had paid for in the first place. So that's how I wound up in the city of Covina, where I still live 23 years later. I moved there when I was two years sober. I'm 25 years sober now. I'm 51 years old. I got sober in 1987. My life is really, and this is what I learned in Covina, if you're, uh, really, we, we affectionately call it the sobriety capital of the world. I, I, by the energy I have seen today with a lot of you guys and this, you guys have it too. Right? But we, and I hope you think the, your, your group is the sobriety capital of the world. But I learned one of the most important lessons of Alcoholics Anonymous right there in my home group, and that is that I need to live in Alcoholics Anonymous and visit the world. Instead of trying to hash it out there in the world and visiting Alcoholics Anonymous, when convenient, right? And that's the way I've lived my life for the last 25 years. I have these two little kids. I'm divorced, but we have two children, five and eight. Their names are Madison and Ryan. And I never knew, I absolutely never knew that I could have a level of love for another human being like that. I'd never experienced it till I was 17 years sober. I mean, I've loved other people. I mean, Will, I love you, but you know, with my children, it's like I've met some, who, who I would die for, right? Absolutely. It means they can live fine. You know, Will, like I said, I love you, but if we were out at Starbucks and some guy pulled a gun and said, it's either you or the guy in the purple tie, I'd go, <laughs> it will. <laughs> right? But if it's my kids, it's like me. Me, me, me. And I would never trade them for the first drink. Never in a million years would I trade my kids for the first drink. But I'm alcoholic. And I understand what it means to be alcoholic. Although I would never trade them for the first drink, I would trade them for the second drink like that. So there is nothing more important than me having my ass right in here in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, right here in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous, not on the outskirts of Alcoholics Anonymous, not on the fringes, not out there, right here in the center doing what all of the rest of you are doing. Thank you. Have a very good night.